you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are kicking off season four with a few episodes on the Reformation in light of Reformation Month, October. And you will hear me say that twice. That is kicking off season four. The reason why is because I began recording for the Denomination series and then shifted gears based off of a vote on Instagram. You guys decided to vote on Instagram that we would have Reformation specials before the Denomination series, and so here we are. Before we begin, thank you for being a part of Christ of the Cure. I am glad to be back with Season 4, and thank you to my patrons who make this all possible. Christ of the Cure is subscriber-supported. Without these patrons, there would be no Season 4, there would be no resources, and so on and so forth. So if you want to prayerfully consider joining the support team, go to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. But let's just jump right into it. It is October, and we are talking about Halloween. And I say it like that because I've been asked to do this topic more times than I can count. And really, this October is pretty interesting as Catholics gather for an in-house dialogue that is filled with much tension. And this is called the Synod of Synodality. And if you feel like going down that rabbit hole, you can go look up, you know, what are the tensions with this synod and things of that nature. But as Protestants, we really recognize this month as Reformation Month, where we reflect on the Protestant heritage and celebrate the departure from medieval superstitions and legalistic bondage. And if you don't know, this is associated with the Reformation because on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther put up his famous 95 Thesis and snowballed the German Reformation, um, while over in Switzerland you had Zwingli, handling the Swiss Reformation, and so there's a lot of moving parts. We've talked a little bit about that in the Beyond Luther series, but we're not going to get into all that right here. So we have this Catholic Synod going on, we have Reformation Month going on, but the big thing is that during this month, Christians and non-Christians alike start posting and debating about Halloween, and that's what we are going to be talking about today, because I have been asked to cover the subject more than a thousand times by now, And I generally avoided it, but I thought this year, why not? And to be honest, it's been kind of interesting because most people expected me to have already covered this because of my book, Holidays and the Feast, where I talk about Christmas and Easter not being pagan. But Halloween is much more complex, and I think that will demonstrate that here. 
there are four threads being pulled on on the subject of Halloween. Church history, American history, ancient pagan history, and neo-pagan history. So while Christmas and Easter had become bogged down in American cultural elements, which really began with the Germans and uh, the commercialization of these two Christian holidays, Halloween has that, but more, especially in terms of all of its baggage. So that said, in honor of Reformation Month and the request for me to open up the new season of the podcast with Reformation specials, we will begin with an episode on Halloween. If you are a patron, you will receive an EPUB or PDF of all of these notes um, whenever I polish it up for you guys, and you should get that within the next couple of weeks. So the approach for this episode will be a little bit different than what you may expect. In fact, you may find that it takes several turns that you did not expect. And the reason why I make such a bold claim is because every time I've looked into Halloween, I have not seen this approach once we get past Samhain. Um, so if you bear with me, hopefully everything will tie together coherently. And if you have looming questions about what does this have to do with Reformation Month, it will become more apparent. There's a direct tie between Halloween and the Reformation. So one thing is important to note before we begin, and it's a crucial, vital caution, vital, important, crucial. Do not assume that you know my conclusions until we reach them. If you bother trying to guess my conclusions, you may find yourself confused when the end of the episode rolls around. The structure of the episodes will be primarily chronological, but we will begin with a discussion on Samhain. And if you don't know what Samhain is, it's the, the Celtic-Irish festival spelled out as S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but pronounced Samhain. Phonetically, there's a couple other ways that it's been uh, spelled out, such as S-O-W as in cow, and then win, W-E-N. But I think of it as S-A-U-W-E-N, Samhain. So this is the Irish Celtic cult that Halloween is said to be based on. And after we discuss Samhain, we will then travel back to the second century and then progress to the Reformation. Okay, so we're talking about Samhain first, then we're going back to the early church, then we'll get to the Reformation, and then we will move into contemporary Halloween, including its elements such as trick-or-treating and the jack-o'-lanterns. And then we will get into concluding discussions, thoughts, and applications. So let's just jump into our discussion on Samhain. So when we're talking about Halloween or looking up Halloween, its origins are often linked to this ancient Irish Celtic festival known as Samhain. The descriptions of Halloween are summarized as this. Halloween is a Christianized or baptized pagan festival of Samhain, and all of its practices are clearly satanic or pagan and trace back to the background of the Celtic tribes of Scotland and Ireland, specifically Ireland. Since we have yet to define or explain All Saints Day, which we will get to in the next section, I'm going to provide a brief summary. All Saints Day was a commemoration of all the saints and martyrs in the church. It was a single observance for exactly that, all of the saints. It would be originally held in May, and then it would be moved to November. Additionally, the night before All Saints Day was known as All Saints Eve or Halloween. And that basic information is going to be important as we move into the discussion on Samhain and the narrative around Halloween and what the historical record shows. So what is the narrative? The serious scholarship on the subject of Samhain is actually scarce, and much of the 
literature that we read on it in our contemporary context of, you know, online and articles and history.org and stuff like that is based off of legend and folklore. This makes finding information really difficult beyond what we see already. It's presupposed across the board that Samhain is connected to Halloween, meaning that fact-checking is quite hard. It is a commonplace claim now that is virtually universally accepted, and many objections to Halloween are made on the basis of these connections. These connections are so universal that if conclusive literature comes out saying that there is zero connection, without a doubt, 100% certainty, that universal narrative will probably still linger on because of how long and how universally propagated it was. And I'm saying that to say it's going to be an uphill battle if you ever want to challenge these claims. Um, still, one of the key historians worth looking at on the subject is Ronald Hutton. He wrote a book entitled Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain. And as you can guess, in this book, he traces the ritual and religious history in Britain. He surveys the literature, he examines and weighs it, and then he draws his own conclusions. He begins his exposition on the Irish Celtic observation by summarizing the general narrative that typically surrounds the Samhain Halloween development, okay? And he does this by opening up his discussion with a quote from a leaflet issued by the British Pagan Federation for Halloween in 1993. First, the leaflet, I don't know why that's funny. Anyway, first, the leaflet describes that the Celts viewed Samhain as the time when the gates between this world and the next world were open, right? That rift between the living and the dead was opened. And so the implications were that this was a time of communications with the spirits of the dead. Further, the Celts would also call upon their past relatives to help them by providing wisdom or warnings for the upcoming year. According to this document, quote, when Christianity became established in Britain, the pagan goddesses and gods were said to have fallen under the rule of all the saints. All Hallows Day, now known as All Saints Day, celebrates this takeover. The old pagan traditions, however, were not eradicated and lived on in the guise of Halloween, the eve of All Hallows Day, or All Saints Day. It should not be surprising that Christianity should seek to suppress the pagan celebrations of Samhain. To the new religion, the deities of the old faith seem like evil spirits, the natural uncanniness of Samhain was interpreted as a time of danger for the Christian soul. The spirits of the dead and the spirits of the other world were confused with the evil demons of the Christian religion. Christianity not only suppressed the old Celtic celebrations, but replaced them with Christian festivals. If we look closely, it is not difficult to see that All Souls Day is a continuation in a Christian form of the older pagan practices of Samhain. This is a time when, on the continent, Catholic families will visit family tombs, say prayers for the dead, light candles, and even picnic at the gravesite, just as their pagan ancestors did. They are communing with the dead, end quote. So for clarity, the claim being expressed is that All Saints Day, that is November 1st, was a replacement of the pagan celebration of Samhain, which was also on November 1st, for the sake of showing that saints had prevailed over pagan deities, and by extension, Halloween, the night before of All Saints Day is just a Christianized Samhain preparation. So that's the narrative of this leaflet. However, on this leaflet, Hutton replies that some of the claims are true, and most may be true. In his work, he examines the literature on the subject, and he reaches his conclusions that most of the conceptions provided or known today are actually folklore that are difficult to substantiate. Further, it is only now that meaningful scholarship on the Celts began to look at the history beyond taking folklore at face value. 
We'll go more into depth on All Saints Day later. Right now, we're going to focus on Samhain. So when it comes to the calendar of the Celts, Hutton states, there is therefore absolutely no firm evidence in the written record that the year opened on the 1st of November in either early Ireland or early Wales. He actually concludes that there's a great deal of Welsh material to refute this idea. He further points out that the observance of Samhain was not normative and that, quote, it may therefore be suggested as a proposal worthy of testing that the notion of a distinctive Celtic ritual year with four festivals at the quarter days and at the opening of Samhain is a scholastic construction of the 18th and 19th centuries, which should now be considered revised or even abandoned altogether. To summarize on this point, the argument that Halloween replaced Samhain, the new year of the Celts, where the rift between the living and the dead was open and people communicate with the spirits and it's a copy-paste kind of thing, should be debated minimally or abandoned altogether given the lack of conclusive evidence and evidence to the contrary in Welsh literature. Further, he says, quote, the medieval records furnish no evidence that 1st of November was a major pan-Celtic festival and there were none of the religious ceremonies even when it was observed. There were being added in brackets for clarity by myself. In addition to this lack of evidence about a 1st of November religious observance or New Year observance, there is little evidence to suggest that Samhain was even a celebration of the dead. Hutton examined one of the chief scholars who popularized this theory, and it remains a theory based on inference, not documentation. In fact, the scholar in question admitted as much that there is no documentation proving Samhain was a pre-existing festival taken over by Christians. Instead, he reasoned to this theory through these ideas. A, that the church had taken over other pagan holy days, B, that many cultures had annual ceremonies to honor the dead, and C, that November 1st was the Celtic New Year, an assumption that was left unproven. In fact, this same scholar suggested that the Celtic New Year became the basis for the church's change of a May date for All Saints Day to the now-existing November date. Of course, this one theory in itself would actually discredit the mainline position that All Saints Day was created for the sake of replacing Samhain, which is assumed to have been in November on the 1st. In other words, this particular scholar who popularized that theory gives All Saints Day a pre-existent status, but in May. Hutton summarizes some of the data we have regarding All Saints Day by stating, quote, By the mid-4th century, Christians in the Mediterranean world were keeping a feast in honor of all of those who had been martyred underneath the pagan emperors, end quote. So from here, he notes that the evidence points to the following that initially Christians in the Mediterranean commemorated Halloween in May, but over time, different regions adopted varying dates and practices, and Rome opted for a day of observance in May and officially endorsed it in AD 609. However, by the 9th century, churches in England and Germany had shifted the celebration to November, a practice already embraced by significant figures like Charlemagne. Pope Gregory supported this November date, indicating its origin in Northern Europe, rather than Celtic traditions, contrary to previous beliefs. Furthermore, Ireland actually stood out as an exception regarding their celebration of All Saints Day. Ireland actually celebrated the Feast of All Saints Day in April, specifically on the 20th. Regardless of whether the origin of the date was Germanic or Frankish, the fact that Ireland celebrated the Feast of All Saints Day in April poses a challenge to the idea that Halloween is simply a repackaged version of an ancient Celtic festival of Samhain 
allegedly observed on November 1st. In other words, if Halloween were directly derived from Samhain or a replacement of it, one would expect that Ireland would have continued the Samhain traditions in November. However, the Irish celebration of the feast in April indicates that the November date for Halloween had a different origin. It was not directly tied to Samhain. So when it comes to the rituals of Samhain, we actually know little aside from some folklore, but mostly modern folklore. In fact, the one thing that is clear about Samhain is the ambiguity of the festival, its timing, its rituals, or whether it was actually even a religious observance at all. The evidence is scant, and while there are new modern theories around Samhain, but these are just now beginning to take off off the ground as scholarship becomes more serious about the Celtic history by historical records. This is to say that historical data makes the claim of a Halloween formation solely around Samhain shaky at best when we eliminate the folklore literature. In addition to this, there is no historical evidence to support the notion that modern alliterations of Halloween came from Samhain. There is simply no evidence for the various elements of our contemporary setting being connected to Samhain. The closest could be the jack-o'-lantern, but not because of Samhain, but instead of folklore in the British Isles. So evidence regarding the elements of Samhain yield no jack-o'-lanterns, witches, ghosts, human sacrifices, and so forth. Instead, most of the customs associated with our modern celebration of Halloween are young, dating to the past 500 years. One of the links that could be argued is that of bonfires, which, if we're honest, are a pretty weak argument from cheap paganism, which I spoke about in my episode on Easter and in my book underneath the same title, Cheap Paganism. The notion of cheap paganism is simply the idea that if the pagans used it or observed particular times, then it must be inherently pagan always, even at the expense of actual paganism, that is, i.e. posture towards a particular pagan deity. So if we're looking at evidence, common items and themes across the globe and cultures cannot be attributed to paganism, such as winter being a sign of the dark and death given how the season affects the earth, for example. It's just a common parallel within culture. A bonfire in particular is difficult to argue as being exclusively pagan, just as much as the Yule log in a fireplace is. Creating fire and burning logs is hardly inherently pagan. So a last possible connection is the connection of Samhain being a festival of the dead, but that is a debate amongst the scholars. If Samhain is indeed a festival of the dead, and shared practices honoring the dead could really be made. The difficulty is that historians and others have noted that honoring the dead, even annually, as a practice, has been a practice in nearly every culture in every century. Nevertheless, the only clear details about Samhain center around the ambiguity of the festival, again, its timing and its rituals, and whether or not it was actually religious observance. The certainty around the festival actually comes from folklore and contemporary new or neo-pagans who do indeed take this folklore to heart and observe it as a modern adaptation of Samhain. Now, Hutton's work on the subject can ultimately summarize as such. The evidence appears to be complex and uncertain. And this is despite the certainty that we have seen. From my observation, the assertion that Halloween is just Samhain wearing a new hat is difficult to substantiate. That said, it really is an uphill battle to even suggest this. And until Hutton's work and subsequent literature comes out, it's just the way it is. And I'm not saying we can't try to correct that, but that's just the way it is. Whenever you Google Halloween, you will see Samhain. And now I want to pause and remind you, do not try to draw my conclusions from this section. That's all I'll say, and now let's move on to talking about All Hallows' Eve in church history. So early in church history, Christians who were martyred were 
revered, and remembered. And the term martyr comes from the Greek term martyria, which is often translated as witness in your New Testament. This term came to denote exclusively the believer who would suffer and die for the faith underneath persecution. Now, pretty early on, miraculous tales around the martyrs began, and one of the earliest pieces of literature detailing a martyrdom outside of the New Testament is found in the collection known as the Apostolic Fathers. The letter is called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, and it details exactly that, the martyrdom of the early Christian bearing that name, Polycarp. There's a summary you can find of Polycarp and this letter in the Apostolic Fathers PDF I prepped on my website. It will be included in the notes below, in the description, and on the website. But ultimately, Polycarp was a famous leader, thought to be a disciple of John, and he was arrested, betrayed, and burned at the stake according to the martyrdom of Polycarp. The takeaway here is that the martyrs gained significant reverence very early on, and this would be the development of the cult of martyrs, which would lead to the cult of the saints. It is important to say that when I mention cult in this context, it does not carry the necessary negative coloration that we are typically used to. Within this context, it just means that there is a sense of veneration or devotion around a particular thing, such as a figure or object. So if you want to look up veneration of the saints, you're typically dealing with the cult of the saints, right? A cult in this context is an organized homage paid to a particular aspect of a broader theological tradition. So when we hear Catholics talk about the cult of the saints, they're referring to the practice and devotion towards the saints within Catholicism. Now, with the church's growing attention on the martyrs, we originally see no difference between the rites, that is the ceremonies or practices of the cult of the martyrs, and the non-Christian cult of the dead. The cult of the dead should be summarized here. I'm going to use the Holman Bible, excuse me, Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary to provide that summarization. Quote, much like ancestor worship, the cult of the dead involves adoration of the deceased. The cult of the dead goes a step beyond adoration, however, seeking to maintain or manage a relationship with the dead. The cult of the dead involves the belief that certain departed spirits must be fed or honored and that they can be channels of information with the spiritual world. While ancestor worship was not common among Israel and her neighbors, the cult of the dead was widely practiced. The belief in the afterlife was apparently universal in the ancient Near East. The provision of food, drink, and artifacts within tombs is an indication of the belief that the departed spirits would have need of such things. Though Israel was forbidden to practice the cult of the dead, she often departed from God's injunctions and engaged in the worship of pagan deities. Wayward Israelites were also guilty of practicing the cult of the dead in 1 Samuel 28, and Israel was specifically warned not to offer to the dead in Deuteronomy 26.14. God warned them through the prophets not to consult the dead in an effort to learn of the future in Isaiah 8.19 and 65.4, and such acts were considered by the prophets to be dangerously at odds with God's will." End quote. So in addition to this cult of the martyrs, the cult of the relics developed. And that, of course, is intrinsically tied with the cult of the martyrs. Relics were remains of these martyrs, such as bones, clothing, instruments of torture, etc. And it cannot be detached from the cult of the martyrs as it developed. The collection of relics began very early on and continues to this day within Catholicism and the Orthodox tradition. Relics are seen as possessing a particular property that sanctify a particular space and can even produce miracles. And so the collection of relics and customs concerning the cult of the dead were ancient, and when Christians recognized the significance of martyrdom, some syncretism occurred. Saxer and Hyde point out, quote, from the cult of the dead, any traditional practices not incompatible with the Christian faith were transferred to the cult of the martyrs. The same thing happened with regard to specifically Christian customs and the cult of the dead, 
born of the desire to correct and complement pagan customs. They go on to provide a summary of the evidence for this claim, but conclude that the data points out that, quote, in the cult of the martyrs, all the previous funerary customs that could be kept continue to be used, end quote. They explain that the most clear-cut example of the connection is found in the custom of libations or drink offerings and funeral banquets on behalf of the dead. Robert Kinney on libation states, quote, The pouring of libations is an ancient, complex, and varied ceremonial act. Usually it took the form of pouring a measure of wine or olive oil, honey, or some other liquid in commemoration or remembrance of something or as an offering to a deity. Particular vessels were often set aside for ceremonial use in distinction from common vessels. And while some rites required the celebrant to pour the liquid on the ground, others required pouring the liquid on an altar, usually as an offering to a god. Customs around the pouring of libations are remarkably similar across cultures and time. So to summarize, a libation, in short, is most often an act of pouring liquid as an offering or sacrifice to a deity. And this term is actually used in some translations of the Old Testament, such as the New English translation of the Septuagint. That is, offering drink offerings to Yahweh. When it comes to the context of libation in the non-Christian pagan world, there were libations to either appease people that they thought may haunt them, or honor those who they loved, or provide sustenance for them beyond the grave. And that's from Bittler's The Ancient Roman Libation Tubes That Connected the Living to the Dead. Tubes were directly built into the grave so that these offerings could be given directly instead of soaking through the ground. In various observances and holidays, individuals would offer wine and foods to the deceased, though not every grave would have a tube. According to Bittler, Christians eventually put an end to libations. They considered the practice to be pagan, but they did not do this immediately, end quote. And what we will find is that when Christians started telling people to not do this, this still persisted through the 11th century, where archaeologists found a libation tube that went to a priest's burial remains, and you can see this in Biller's article. Now, the cult of the martyrs would eventually diverge in taking on a particularly communal aspect and liturgical form. So it would add these elements and tweak the cult of the dead to where there was a more communal aspect, that is the communion of the saints, and liturgy, that is an order of worship. In the 3rd century, the Christian writer Cyprian would speak about Christians celebrating communion, or the supper, or the Eucharist, on behalf of the martyrs. The supper would be taken on the anniversary of the martyrs and would contain within it an intercession on behalf of the martyrs. That would, They would pray for the martyrs. In the 4th century, however, there were major changes in the cult of the martyrs, especially in that the church would no longer view themselves as praying for the martyrs, but instead these saints would pray for them, which led to a stronger devotion to invoking or calling on the saints. Historian Robert Bartlett describes more of the changes as follows, quote, Alongside the new relationship with the state, new patterns and habits of worship developed, which it is possible to sum up simply by saying that in this period Christianity became a religion. The Middle Eastern world in which Jesus and his followers lived had a clear and distinct concept of religion. That is, the temple cults in which ritual specialists, the priests, represented the people and sought divine favor through sacrifice. In its origin, Christianity was a radical revivalist cult that rejected most of these things. By the end of the 4th century, they were back again. Holy buildings, priestly rituals, and the language of sacrifice and mystery. A priest of Baal or Isis or Yahweh would certainly have recognized what kind of thing Christianity of the late 4th century was. It was as part of this immense transformation that the cult of the saints came into new prominence and new assured forms. And that's in his work, 
Why can the dead do such great things? Saints and worshipers from the martyrs to the Reformation by Princeton University Press. Like I said, these will be in the notes. So some of these changes included the venues for the saints. They moved from these underground tombs or catacombs to shrines erected in their honor, along with a new means of venerating them. This new means of veneration would actually include regular rituals to honor the martyr, bring an offering, and of course, expect help for them in exchange. The exchange that took place was that of a patron-client relationship. And this relationship included offerings, intercession, intermediaries, and at times, a patron saint that one would dedicate themselves to. Bartlett says, quote, The saint was a powerful, if usually invisible, patron, an invisible friend who could provide direct help and also access to yet higher levels in the cosmic hierarchy. Any society that knew the patron-client relationship of the ancient world or the significance of lordship in the medieval one would find the dynamics of invocation and the saintly intercession self-explanatory. Saints were the intercessors. They were the intermediaries between the needy human beings and the almighty. The world of patronage and favors extended beyond this earthly life. A telling simile was that having a saint on your side was a bit like winning over the bodyguard of a great king to give you access to him. And just as suppliants sought out powerful helpers, so too the honor of those helpers was increased by the requests made to them. End quote. So invocation of the saints that is calling on the saints it was a direct address given to a saint. And many of these invocations were done by means of a pilgrimage to the saint's shrine, especially if a relic was present. Quote, the worshipers thus had duties to respect and revere the saint, to bring offerings, to participate in celebration on feast days, but the saint had duties too. He or she was expected to provide help, and it was unquestionably the worshippers' right to reproach saints who failed to help. End quote. So these pilgrimages would be heightened dramatically and relics multiply and critiqued heavily by the time of the Protestant Reformation as the reformers saw the poor bleeding money for what mimicked a pagan pantheon of deities that made the clergy wealthy. But in the 4th century, another important development occurred. The previous funerary banquets that had been adopted from the cult of the dead were beginning to be suppressed, beginning with Ambrose of Milan and Augustine of Hippo following suit. Both Ambrose and Augustine found the common banquets to be too pagan and needing to be replaced. Thus, instead of this being a private ritual where one brought an offering to a martyr, the focus would shift on commemoration via a partaking in the Lord's Supper in the liturgy that is at a dedicated service. Slowly, the banquets would eventually be replaced by prayer vigils, with feast days being a time for taking the supper in honor of a martyr. It would only be after the 4th century that non-martyr Christians would begin to be recognized as objects of honor and incorporated into this cult. This incorporation of non-martyrs would lead to a more broad cult, that is the cult of the saints, and all that came with them, that is holy days, relics, invocation, patrons, orders, and so forth. Bartlett notes that the celebration of the saints' holy days became a central part of the church ritual. He notes that this is a fact of the liturgy where veneration was moved into the church in forms of public worship. Annual meetings for commemorating the martyrs began to form in various regions in the 4th century, and they would be made official in the 7th century, namely in AD 609. The first officialization of All Saints Day was put into place by the Bishop of Rome, who would convert the Pantheon in Rome to a church, and he dedicated it to Mary. So the day was established in order to combine and consolidate the numerous observations of the saints into a universal single day, particularly on May 13th. This would ensure that every saint could be accounted for in the church's calendar, and this would be an obligatory observation. 
It's important to note that this did not eliminate the other saints' day from the church calendar. Later on in the 9th century, the Bishop of Rome would change the date to November 1st, and the earliest documentation recording this is in the 8th century calendar of York, along with the correspondence between leadership in England, urging for the change in observance. And so the annual observance would be held on November 1st in the West, but it would take some time to be observed in the East, and even then, because of the difference between the calendars, its date technically differs between the Catholics and the Orthodox Church today, but both observe it. Bartlett on this feast day says, quote, What is clear is that from the 9th century, the Feast of All Saints on the 1st of November was an important ceremony in the Western Church. It gave worshipers the opportunity to make up for any lack in the respect they had shown to the saints. It had been instituted so that what human frailty had neglected in the celebrations of the saints throughout the year can today, by their merits, be relieved. Because the number of saints is almost infinite and humans are weak and at times short, the Church has reasonably ordained that since... We cannot celebrate the Feast of All Saints individually. At least we can honor them all generally at the same time. End quote. And eventually over time, November 2nd would be added to this as All Souls Day. The eve before All Saints Day on November 1st, that is October 31st, would be called All Hallows Eve, which is what we now call Halloween. The extension to November 2nd, that is All Souls Day, is when all of those who had departed earth, yet without sainthood, those who are in purgatory, would be prayed for. As several commentators of the observances note, the first marked when saints would be prayed to, the second when souls would be prayed for. So purgatory is tied closely with All Souls Day. Now concerning the name of Halloween, we can begin by stating that hollow is an old English designation for to make holy, to sanctify, to honor as holy, etc. This can be seen in your Middle English translations of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, take the King James and read your Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. The same term also can denote a saint or a holy person. If we put two to two together, we get All Hallows Day or otherwise All Hallows Eve. And this is All Saints Day or All Saints Eve. When it comes to Halloween, this is actually um, a shortened edition that came from the Scottish people in the 18th century. Within the Scottish context, the observance of All Hallows Eve would be shortened to All Halloween or All Hallows Even. In other words, Halloween is just another way of saying All Saints Eve. Now, by the medieval period, the cult of the saints had run rampant and would be critiqued by the reformers on theological, ethical, and even economic grounds. But also during this period, the liturgy for All Saints Day was elaborately structured to ensure the readings were dedicated to the Trinity, Mary, angels, prophets, apostles, martyrs, confessors, virgins, and all the remaining saints. The liturgy also recalled the first dedication to the Pantheon, that is, the dedication of the Pantheon to Mary, and the institution of All Saints Day with honor and veneration for the saints, filling the remainder of the service. Halloween, or All Hallows Eve, would be, and is to this day, focused on prepping for this veneration of the saints. And All Saints Day is intrinsically and religiously linked to the cult of the saints. A final word is needed for this section, and that is on indulgences. Before we move into the period of the Reformation, we must grasp that the cult of the saints was tied up tightly with indulgences, relics, intercession, expected miracles, shrines, offerings, and eventually icons and images. We won't describe all of these in details. Bartlett's work should be consulted for the most concise but detailed examination of all of these issues, but instead we want to focus on indulgences because of their role in the Reformation. Around the time of the Great Schism in AD 1054 between the East and the West, 
Differences arose on the number of issues, but one of them was on purgatory and on indulgences. The East did not teach this doctrine, while the West, it became a major idea. In the West, it was taught that various aspects of sin's penalty could be removed on earth by penance or by an indulgence. An indulgence is just a pardon for temporal penalties of sin that would be experienced in purgatory. So if a believer died without such a payment for punishment they owed, the outstanding debt would be dealt with in the fire of purgatory. Eventually, the Pope would be recognized as having the power to release souls from purgatory because of the papacy's control over what is called the treasury of merits. These merits were the surplus righteousness of the saints or a storehouse of spiritual wealth. The Pope could transfer these merits from the saints or this treasury to the souls in purgatory via an indulgence and thus pay off the remaining punishment and release them from purgatory and let them into heaven. The East in juxtaposition did not hold to purgatory, at least not in the same way, or the treasury merits or indulgences. Indulgences were not, and I want people to hear this, were not contrary to misconceptions, pay to get out of hell, but rather pay to alleviate time that must be spent in purgatory. This is an important distinction because the indulgence worked for those already on the path to heaven, not for those who would be in hell. And this would really get tied up with mortal and venial sins, but we're not getting into that. If you want to hear about that, go to last year's episode on indulgences. Now, when indulgences were originally formed, they were not received by payment, but instead through an exceptionally good deed. The Crusades would be that shift where indulgences could be accepted or sold for cash. Further clarification here is that the money wasn't the cause for the satisfaction in the time of purgatory, but rather the charity of the giving of cash was. By the end of the Crusades, however, payments were accepted for indulgences, and eventually indulgences would be able to cover not only your future time in purgatory, but also the souls of your loved ones who are already in purgatory. There were more significant developments in the doctrine, especially in the 13th century, and even critiques of the doctrine long before Luther. Still, in 1515, Pope Leo X issued the sale of indulgences in Germany with the purpose of bringing finances to build the Basilica in Rome, that is St. Peter's building, and an individual named John Tetzel acted as the papal agent in the selling of these indulgences with very high emotional manipulation, with heavy promises of instant release from purgatory, for loved ones as soon as one purchased an indulgence. In 1517, Tetzel preached in Wittenberg, eliciting Luther to react as his people were buying these indulgences, believing that salvation could be bought. This led to his 95 Theses, which Luther famously presented at Wittenberg's Castle Church on the public board of October 31st. These theses were entitled The Disputation of the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, these critiques were in particular aimed at indulgences as presented by Tetzel and the culture of his day, not necessarily the doctrine official, and that would be critiqued later on. Now, while Luther's main contention was the sale of indulgences and questioning purgatory, this tied directly to critiquing the cult of the saints. Luther, however, was one of the more reluctant reformers on the subject. Nonetheless, Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis on October 31st is hardly coincidence, but most likely tied to the fact that it was the eve of All Saints Day. And according to some narratives, there was a vast collection of relics that were kept in the castle church in Wittenberg, where Luther placed his thesis. In turn, when people would pilgrimage to venerate these relics for All Saints Day, Luther's thesis would be in front and center. However, while Luther's timing would have been good for exposure, the means he used to announce his thesis was actually the equivalent of a typical bulletin board, lacking the drama and flair we often attribute to it. 
Following the thesis, Luther's first appearance in 1518 led to the first discussion on the cult of the saints because of his reference to the Treasury of Merits and Thesis 6 of his 95 Thesis. In Luther's disputes and debates, indulgences were ultimately front and center until June 1522, where veneration of the saints would be addressed head on, but we're going to stop there for now. So it would be good to summarize everything we have covered so far. The origins of Halloween have long been associated with this ancient Irish Celtic festival of Samhain, and according to the common narrative, Halloween is considered a Christianized version of Samhain. However, when scrutinizing this narrative, doubts arise in its historical accuracy, especially with scholars like Ronald Hutton, who have pointed out that much of the evidence supporting this connection is based off folklore and lacks concrete historical documentation. The existence of a distinct Celtic ritual year with Samhain as its focal point is questioned, and there is no firm evidence for the year beginning on November 1st in early Ireland or Wales. So the idea that Hawen is a direct Christianized adaptation of Samhain is further challenged by the fact that the celebration of All Saints Day, initially commemorated in May, underwent regional variations and shifted to November in some places, like England and Germany, but remained in April in Ireland. This discrepancy in the dates suggests that the origins of Halloween may not be as straightforward as the narrative implies and raises questions about the connections to Samhain. Additionally, while some of the elements of Halloween, such as bonfires, have been loosely associated with Samhain traditions, the evidence is often weak and speculative. Most of the modern themes and customs can be dated to the last 500 years, which we will talk about in part two. Furthermore, when we looked at the history of All Saints Day and Halloween, it could be argued that there is a subtle and indirect or direct pagan connection that is often overlooked because of the Samhain narrative. It is clear from historians that the Christian view of the cult of the martyrs developed from a common root with the pagans, i.e. the cult of the dead, which would later develop into a cult of the saints, culminating in holidays, but especially All Saints Day. The developments of the cult of the saints seems to have developed from certain elements or practices from pre-existent pagan traditions, particularly those related to, again, the cult of the dead. And this seems readily apparent when we see these elements being shaved off or repackaged later on, especially in the 4th century. In summary, when it comes to pagan roots, the origins of Halloween and its practices may have a more complex layer than a simple transition from Samhain to a Christianized version of Samhain. So this so far summarizes Samhain and All Hallows' Eve in the history of the Cult of the Saints. And next week we will talk about the Reformation and the Reformers' view of the Cult of the Saints, which you must remember the Cult of the Saints is intrinsically and inseparably tied to All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day. So if we're talking about the foundation of the holiday, if we're talking about the roots of the holiday, if we're talking about the basis and how the holiday is to be properly observed, it's first and foremost linked to the cult of the saints. So we will discuss that and the Reformation. Then we will discuss modern Halloween and the contemporary practices that we see today. And then we will finally move into drawing thoughts, applications, and general conclusions. I hope this episode has been helpful. There are timestamps in the description. Have a wonderful weekend. And until next time, God bless you all.